Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This is the third and final podcast in our series looking at developing a systems approach to achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, which was also the subject of a recent webinar held by the Foundation. With me to discuss the issues and challenges of such a systems approach is Professor Jeremy Watson, Professor of Engineering Systems at University College London and Chief Scientist and Engineer at the Building Research Establishment. Professor Watson, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much indeed, Gavin, and thanks for having me. What do you think the main challenges are for us to get to net zero? Well, I think what we face is, is, is really a socio-technical problem that requires systems thinking, planning and action, really from the outset, right the way through the, uh, the, the strategy and delivery chain. We, we need to think across sectors. We need to think vertically from pure strategy to practice and policy. Um, and we need to ensure that there is proper attention paid, if you like, to the economics as well as the technology, the behavioral aspects. Uh, and we need to create, if you like, winning uh, propositions for everyone as much far as possible down that chain to motivate action. Um, I think, you know, the behavioral side is both corporate and at, at a citizen level. I think others have, have commented that most of the technologies we need, although they may not be fully developed, are actually already around us. And what we need is the economies of scale and focused action at uh, using systems thinking to make that work across the whole of uh, the carbon intensive uh, applications. So one of the key challenges amongst all the different things uh, that need to be done is in decarbonizing buildings. Uh, and you're obviously chief scientist at the building research establishment. Why is decarbonizing buildings difficult and, and what needs to be done? That's a very, a very good question. It's one that's been with us for a little while because, uh, as you probably know, in between 2009 and 2012, I was chief scientific advisor at what was then D, uh, DCLG, now MHCLG, and we were looking at decarbonizing new buildings and our, our sister department in Whitehall, uh, which was DEC, of course, at that time now in, in Bayes, was thinking about decarbonizing for retrofit. And the observations that still uh, are valid today are that 80% of the buildings that we're going to have in 2050 are actually with us now. So it is very largely a retrofit uh, challenge really to, to remove, reduce the carbon intensity of buildings. And that 25% of the carbon impact uh, in the atmosphere is due to domestic housing uh, right now. So dealing with that would have a very big contribution to achieving our, our goals. But again, although the technologies are reasonably well known, interventions are expensive and how we pay for those um, remains, I think, an interesting question. For householders, there may not be an immediate compelling reason for action with respect to saving money by better insulation or whatever. And I think as we move from our gas boilers through to air source heat pumps or ground source heat pumps, which are obviously electrically powered, or burning hydrogen in, in boilers, that transition will be tricky and expensive for, for um, society as a whole and for, and for individuals. And that, that challenge is still with us, I think. There have been a number of initiatives, as, as we know, ranging right back to when we had the Green Deal to try and encourage people to insulate their homes better, because that then reduces the, uh, the, the burden, if you like, of carbon intensity on even gas boilers. But more importantly, when one puts air air source heat pumps in, then we need a, a more efficient insulation to get benefit from them. 
And that is, again, really a, a different sort of systems problem where we're looking at supply chains, we're looking at affordability, we're looking at investability and actually how over perhaps multiple occupancy, the ownership of a building can uh, have its costs amortized over a longer period. So technology is with us, but a heck of a lot of uh, stuff to do around the socioeconomics. And has anyone else solved this problem? I mean, it sounds like every, every country in the world is going to have the same problem. Are there other initiatives that seem to have worked elsewhere? Well, I think in Scandinavia, the, there's probably been more innovation in new build than, than we have here. I suppose, you know, de facto, the colder climates have meant that, that insulation has been required to be vastly better from the outset. But I think that's been largely in new build for a fairly long period. So if you like, new build that's been with us for some time, the baseline for efficiency of buildings is, is much higher in those countries than we've traditionally experienced. And actually, interestingly, in southern Mediterranean climes, for example, there's very, very poor insulation. So there are also negative examples of how you don't want to do it. We are now moving towards much better building materials, if you like, that are available. There's off-site manufacture, for example, which again has been commonplace, for example, in the US, but also in Scandinavia. So you're buying components that are being assembled, like uh, you know, window assemblies and wall assemblies and so on, at a much larger scale, that are built in a factory and hence much more predictable in their performance than ones that are actually put together on site. So yes, there are, are some very good instances we can look at. They've been looked at for some time. And I think we've been trying to, to bring some of that practice. I know at BRE we've done that, uh, to bring some of that practice into demonstrators in the UK. And, and those buildings do work. So some of the buildings on the Innovation Park at uh, BRE in, in Watford are almost uh, net energy positive. So with uh, photovoltaics on the roof, battery storage, for about three quarters of the year, those, those buildings don't require any external energy provision. No, that's really interesting and, and a possible glimpse of the future. But as you as you say, it's the expense uh, uh, of getting there and the way that we nudge people in that direction. Let me ask you about something else. Clearly, whatever we do in the UK, electrification potentially means a, a large increase in power generation. And that's at a time when we actually want to phase out fossil fuel use, of course. Can we actually bring this capacity online in the timescales that we need to do so? Again, a, a really challenging and important question. I did a little bit of work in preparing for a CST presentation last May and did a, a rough sort of sketch, if you like, using Excel spreadsheets on the energy requirements for the UK going forward in, into the 2040s, 50s. And with the electrification of uh, vehicle transport, again, taking a systems view across transport and buildings and energy, what that study revealed, and it's since been you know, uh, largely ratified by other figures that I've obtained, uh, and that is that the current peak energy generating capacity, which is of the order of 70 gigawatts, needs to be doubled actually to around about 150 gigawatts to support air source heat pumps in most buildings and electric vehicles. And all of that generation, of course, has to be carbon free. So that brings us back to wind generation and nuclear. We clearly need both. We need to build wind, ge wind generators at pace. And I think that is now possible. I think the rate at which we can add gigawatts to the, the grid is probably as fast as any land-based uh, generating capacity. But of course, it's intermittent. And we get blocking highs over the North Sea and 
periods of perhaps up to two weeks where we don't have wind at any significant level, uh, even though the country is very rich in that resource the rest of the time. So a key part of this whole story, the systems view, has to be energy storage. And that energy storage could be through a variety of different means. I mean, traditionally, we, as in Denorwick, we pump water uphill, but that's at a very small scale, and then let the water down through hydro plants to generate electricity. I think probably going forward, we're going to be looking much more at hydrogen technology. So we may well see offshore electrolysis plant and piping hydrogen ashore, or even reconstituting electricity from using fuel cells locally so we can restore the electrical capacity at times when the wind isn't blowing so hard. You talked about hydrogen, and I wanted to ask you about it. There's obviously a big debate going on about hydrogen, and it has many advantages when you use it, but it takes a significant amount of electricity to produce it in the first place. What, what's your whole take on where hydrogen is and how it will start to be used in our energy system going forward? This is uh, obviously a conversation and a, 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 a debate that's been going on for a little time, but it's really hotted up recently. I was technical director of part of uh, the BOC group, uh, the gases company, and we were looking at safety around hydrogen and, for example, fueling road vehicles with it. And we found that it was possible very straightforwardly with the right science to create safe hydrogen fueling and use. I think that's been borne out by other studies since. So safety shouldn't be a major issue. And I'll come back to uh, another demonstrating piece of evidence around that later. But hydrogen provides an almost, well, it is unique in the sense that it's an energy store and a buffer, but it's also a very flexible energy vector. So uh, if we can get the efficiency, for example, of, of electrolysis and fuel cells, which right up to the theoretical limit or very close to it, which I think is being accelerated by understanding of catalysts, by understanding um, the uh, proton membranes, that permeable membranes that are used in fuel cells and electrolyzers. In fact, the technology in one place can, can often transfer across to the other. If we get that creation and regeneration efficiency high enough, then hydrogen becomes a really logical mass energy store, potentially, as I mentioned before, with respect to wind farms, it could even be local out at sea, which would mitigate a lot of the, any safety worries about mass storage of hydrogen. And then you can ship it actually as a, as a raw material, as a gas, or you can ship it as an energy vector in the form of a, a gas that then is converted into electricity fuel through fuel cells. Moreover, I mean, there, there is um, a significant debate going on at the moment about using hydrogen in, in domestic homes in gas boilers and, and, if you like, converting gas boilers or creating new versions of gas boilers that, that use hydrogen in place of methane, natural gas. And in fact, we transitioned from town gas back in the 60s to methane, to CH4, very effectively at some cost, of course, but town gas was actually a mixture of hydrogen and carbon monoxide and obviously, we would not need have the carbon monoxide in, in a hydrogen-provided system, so that safety issue would go away. We'd have to make the gas odorous, so we'd know if there was a leak or not. Uh, again, a lot of studies been done, I think, for Bayes around that, and it's been shown that hydrogen is a viable fuel uh, in domestic homes. Uh, that would be less of a disruption, if you like, than going to air source heat pumps. So I think hydrogen will play a, a very significant role in the future. It could do uh, with the right support. But we have to, it has to be green hydrogen at the moment. 
hydrogen is made basically from hydrocarbons, like you know, cracking hydrocarbons into constituent molecules. And that is not a, a sustainable way forward. We actually have to generate hydrogen using non-carbon intensive methods like wind generation and photovoltaics. No, really interesting. And of course, that's going to require a lot more power on the grid in order to generate that hydrogen in the it first is, place. Yeah, I'd, I'd love just like to add in a particular a comment on that, actually, because I've been talking th- uh, as a result of an initiative I'll talk about a little bit later on with an initiative going on in Orkley, Orkney, which is looking at renewable energy and conversion to hydrogen. And the reason why they're looking at it is because the, the electricity grid doesn't have the capacity to import electrical energy directly. So they're actually forced to think about in a net energy, in an energy positive environment, how they actually get the energy out into the greater community. And, and hydrogen is the way they're looking at it at the moment. Oh, that is really interesting. Yeah, no, I can see that being, uh, being quite good. I want to take you a little bit back. You were talking about installing things in buildings to reduce the energy capacity of buildings. And on energy efficiency more generally, do you think we can deliver what we need on energy efficiency without changing our comfortable lifestyles? Or do we really need to change our lifestyles to to get to net zero? I think to a degree we, we do, because under that heading of lifestyles, I've, you know, we think of personal transport. Um, we probably need to travel less. Um, we need to use the, the right form of uh, transport. We're moving to electric vehicles, so that will deal with a lot of that. There is the issue of domestic energy, which you're alluding to. If homes are better insulated, we'll use less of that. But a colleague at UCL, Professor Aretzin, came up with a really interesting fact, uh, which I didn't know the other day, and that is that the effect of of changing the efficiency of heat pumps from, I think, about 2.5 to 3.5 is equivalent to insulating all the homes in the UK. So a minor improvement, what seems to be a minor improvement in a a top technology that we might use would obviate the need (laughs) to take that insulative measure, which is an extraordinary thing. It's it's extremely, it demonstrates sensitivity to a parameter we probably have some control of. And that's about how the quality of installation as well as the quality of the of the units we put in. I think under lifestyle, a lot of other commentators have talked about eating habits and uh, uh, you know the, the, the sorts of carbon intensity around ruminant animals, uh, which is principally a methane emission source. We probably just need to moderate that, and we we may ultimately in in probably several decades go to. Uh, meat that's synthesized in laboratories and, and built, you know, built in fermenters rather than in animals, which would mitigate that problem. In the meantime, there are other forms of um, livestock which are, are much less intensive. So non-ruminant ruminant animals like pigs and chickens, for example, have a much lower methane footprint than cows and sheep. I mean, doing this whole systems approach to trying to get to net zero is, is going to require sort of unprecedented levels, really, of, of collaboration and coordination between government, industry, academia, and other players as well. Do we have the structures in place and within government to actually enable this? I, I don't really perceive that we do at the moment, but we do have some models for things that uh, might be effective. My perception of the whole field is there's a lot of activity going on, but it's not necessarily connected up. It isn't joined up. There isn't the connective tissue, for want of a better word, between a number of really enthusiastic, well-intentioned initiatives, both in academe, there's a, a COP26 universities group, for example, right the way through to 
the Association of uh, Innovation Research Technology Organizations, which is binding together the public sector research labs and the, the research technology organizations. Lots of really good uh, ideas coming through, but not really necessarily connected up and, and not providing that coherence of thought that we need to make really high impact um, outcomes at the moment. I mean, it may well change with time and urgency. But in response to that, and in response to that um, CST, the Council for Science and Technology briefing I did last year, which was to Minister Kwasi Kwarteng before he had his uh, Secretary of State role, the debate was really around decarbonizing domestic homes. And, and I gave a presentation which gave that whole systems approach and the electricity generation impact of that. And that led me to think as a result of that meeting, could we use a model which government already has trialed and it's been very effective in certain areas of a what works center. So a what works center, which uh, is a curious title perhaps for those who haven't come across it, relates to translating learning from a particular application or area into another area or into policy advice. And the, the, the watchwords of it really are about impartiality, really, absolute trustworthiness, being evidence-based and having proper governance to ensure that. So what I envisage is that we might think about a what works center for net zero, which would have a vertical uh, transition between if you like, the Committee for Climate Change and what they're saying needs to be done, and then translating that through into policy and real practice advice, which could then be disseminated out to a number of sectors, which might include you know, domestic housing, building, transport, energy, carbon intensive industry, agritech, and so on. And then creating or catalyzing, rather than trying to do it all within the What Works Centre, catalyzing conversations between the sectors to establish the systems approach literally of what works in one place might it apply in another. And when I say what works, I don't just mean technically what works, I mean what works in business terms, in, in behavioral terms, and how those connect with technology as well. So I think connecting strategy to policy and practice and sharing what works between the sectors of application is absolutely crucial. And I hope we see something, even if it's not what I'm proposing, I've got quite a lot of buy-in already for it, but we need to do something that is properly connected so we get the coherence of thought and action. And as I said before, you know, the win-wins in each of the sectors, reducing the cost of, of that transition by looking to see what's worked in other sectors. And, and certainly, I, I think you're right, some new infrastructure is, is needed. And the What Work Centre does seem to be a great model for, for doing some of this. I wanted to ask you about something else, actually, uh, and it's it's almost impossible to have any conversation without mentioning COVID. But do you think that the assumptions that we've had about how we're going to get to net zero are based a little bit on pre-COVID working patterns? And are post-COVID working patterns going to change some of those assumptions about what we need to deliver net zero? Yes, again, a very timely and, and useful question. Personally, I, I believe that the fact that many of us, myself included, and probably yourself, are finding ourselves actually working more effectively uh, without our commutes, if you like, and, and with more effective working hours in the day, and uh, without delays between meetings, for example, because we're just switching electronically, will actually lead to a change in attitude on the part of employees and employers of desirable ways to, to work. And incidentally, as a collateral outcome of that, we will have less carbon intensity in terms of personal transport, I think, or we could have if behaviours change as a result. So I think 
yes, I think that uh, working patterns will change anyway, and I think those working patterns will be beneficial overall. Uh, but also there's, there's the up and the downside in terms of uh, creativeness and innovation and bouncing ideas off each other. I think we'll still need face-to-face -face meetings from time to time, but they may be purposed specifically for those creative events rather than just going into the office to sit in front of a keyboard rather than doing that at home. And that's, I guess, one where we just have to see how things develop over the, over the coming year or two. Yeah. Just to finish off, I mean, and drawing all of these different things together, what do you think the key priorities in government should be over the next couple of years to, to start to put in place some of what's needed to deliver the uh, net zero agenda? Well, I think speaking as an engineer with a sort of systems orientation, I would want to sort of study the overall picture and try and identify those variables that I could change um, and, and understand their sensitivity on the outcomes we're looking for. So there are some things that would require relatively little change. They could be almost called catalytic effects, which would motivate quite a large effect in society and in carbon impact. So I would say that um, currently my view is that, that government could encourage cross-sector collaboration, try and make that, if you like, neutral with respect to immediate business gain and, and try and obtain a longer term view for investors as well, so that ultimately uh, there is a win-win for everyone. And to understand the sort of reward systems that might apply both to business, but also to individual um, citizens and householders. And that's quite complex. It's not just a money handout. It's understanding what is the most catalytic action, what has the highest sensitivity uh, to obtain the outcomes that uh, we're looking for. And you know, going back to the What Works Centre approach, I think that could contribute because it would encourage a number of conversations from which we would learn some of those sensitivities. We'll just have to wait and see what the government does. That's all we've got time for. But uh, Professor Jeremy Watson, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Professor Jeremy Watson, Professor of Engineering Systems at University College London and Chief Scientist and Engineer at the Building Research Establishment. The issue of developing a systems approach to net zero was the subject of a webinar organised by the Foundation on the 28th of June. A recording of that webinar is available on our website at www.foundation.com. .org.uk. Also on our website are details of other events, our blogs, the Foundation Future Leader Scheme and all previous editions of this podcast. Next week we're discussing the University Business Interface and my guest will be Rory Miles, Innovation Fellow at the Centre for Enzyme Innovation at the University of Portsmouth and a member of the Foundation Future Leader Scheme. Until then, goodbye.